welcome to the Fit Vegan Podcast, the show where we help you optimize your health, fitness, and mindset on a whole food plant-based lifestyle. My name is Maxim Sigoy. I am a former triathlete, powerlifter, bodybuilder, and basketball player, and I've been vegan for over nine years. I'm also the founder and CEO of Fit Vegan Coaching, which has helped over 500 vegans from 20 different countries to completely transform their bodies and their health. I'm excited for you to hear today's episode. Let's get into the show. All right. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Fit Vegan Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. I'm very excited to record with Gay Hendricks, the author of The Big Leap, a book that I've mentioned multiple times throughout all the episodes that I've recorded. If you've listened to any of my lives, I continuously recommend it. I make I make it mandatory for my business partners to read them for our members so that we can be on the same playing field of communication. Um, so Gay is a psychologist, writer, and teacher in the field of personal growth, relationship, and body intelligence. He's best known for his work in relationship enhancement and in development of conscious breathing exercise. He's the author of over 50 books, including, including Conscious Loving, Conscious Living, and then my personal favorite, The Big Leap. Gay, how are you doing today? I'm doing very, very well. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you very much for taking the time to, to chat with me. Um, once I announced to my members that I was going to be recording with you, I had a, a flood of questions that that came in. Um, and in doing my research for, for this interview today, I kind of dove into uh, a little bit of your story. And I heard, I think you mentioned you were weighing up to 300 pounds at one point. So you, you kind of have like your, your own personal transformation. Oh, I had a big time transformation that goes back to when I was 24 years old. So it's been 50 years ago, but it totally changed my life. Uh, I can tell you what happened if you'd like. or, or uh, yeah. I would love that because a lot okay. of the things that I heard you share were connected to kind of what people have to go through in their own transformation. Well, yeah. Well, I was born with some kind of a glandular defect in my thyroid and pituitary gland where I was the only fat person in a family where everybody else was skinny. And so I was eating the same foods they were, but somehow it all stuck to me in fat. And so I was very obese and I was taken around as a child to different specialists. And even up into my, like, I remember going to one specialist when I was 12 or 13. And by then I weighed 300 pounds and I, I'm six feet tall, but still, um, I now weigh 180 pounds or so. So, you know, I'm 120 pounds less for the past 50 years. But yeah. what happened was anyway, the weight never came off. I never, I went on one radical diet when I was about 14, where they gave me diet pills, amphetamines. And yeah. I was hyper for the entire year. And I made straight A's because I couldn't sleep at night. And so <laughs> I was just a total wreck uh, otherwise. And so, um, I, uh, once I came off that, I gained a lot of the weight back. Uh, but anyway, to make a long story short, up until the age I was 24, I still was struggling with my weight, although I tried everything. And so one day I went out for a walk to kind of clear my head after I'd been in a, conf a conflict, an argument with the woman I was with at the time. I, I was about two years into a very difficult relationship and it took me another two years to get out of it, uh, but it wasn't going well at all. And so we fought all the time. And so I went out, uh, it was a 
that it had just snowed in New Hampshire, uh, where we were at the time. And I stepped on a place on the ice where snow was covering the ice, but uh, I couldn't see the ice beneath it. And my feet yeah. shot out from under me and I went wham down on my back. I hit my head. I didn't knock myself out. But I, I say now I, I had an out of Hendrix experience where I, I kind of got outside myself for about two or three minutes. And I guess I think I also got inside myself for that same period of time, but it knocked me out of my usual perception of myself. And wh while I was laying there on my back on the ground on the on this snowy road, I went into this altered state of consciousness where it was like I could see down through all the layers of myself. And I could see where this huge layer of fat was surrounding my body, like wearing a big coat. And I could see why I had the fat, which was to protect myself against everything else that was going on underneath. And in this moment, I could see everything that was going on underneath. I could see how tight my muscles were. And I could see all of these emotions that I'd never spoken about. I could see anger and I could see sadness going all the way back to before I was born, when my father died, when my mother was pregnant with me. And they think later they figured out that my mother stopped eating when my father died. And I was only, you know, a few months into being inside her. And so to compensate for her not eating, everything changed in my glandular system to store fat on me for survival. Mm -hmm. And so that's how this whole thing got set into place. So, but I didn't find that out till much, much later. I don't think those discoveries were made until much later on in my life. But what happened to me on this magic day is I saw down through all these levels of emotion that I'd never contacted. But then here's the magic part. I saw at the center of everything that I was what I call pure consciousness, that there's inside of all of us, not just me, but everybody, this pure consciousness, which we get as a birthright, and that a lot of times it gets snuffed out and kind of hidden, though, because people tell us how we're supposed to feel and then punish us. And, you know, all the whole programming of life, a lot of times stamps out our appreciation of our pure consciousness. But during those few minutes I was lying on the ground, I could feel that permeating me everywhere. And I made this decision, and I think here's, here's what really enabled it. As I was coming out of my of the space I was in, I realized, oh, I've got to go back into that same apartment where I just had this argument. And, oh, I want a cigarette. I forgot to mention I was a heavy smoker at the time, and which was very soon to end. But in that moment, I could feel like, oh, gosh, I still want a cigarette, even though I just had this experience of enlightenment. My body still craved a cigarette. And then I realized, oh, I want some ice cream, too. You know, my fat body was taking over. And so yeah. I felt all of these levels come back into my awareness. But here's what I did, which I think changed my life, probably saved my life, actually. I made a commitment. I said, I commit to doing whatever it takes to feel that sense of pure consciousness in every moment all the time. 
now, 50 years later, I can feel that all the time. And so my dream came true. But what had to happen first was I had to peel off an extra 100 plus pounds of fat I didn't need. And that took me a year. And I did it by the most amazing diet. I uh, I, I would happily encourage this diet to, to anyone. Excuse me, I need to take a quick drink. No worries. For the next year, one day at a time, I chose to eat only foods that I'd never eaten before. I mm. figured everything I ate before made me 300 pounder. So why don't I just eat things I've never eaten before? And I came up with two things, which I'd almost never eaten, which were fruits and vegetables. And, you know, before my diet was a triple cheeseburger, some fries and a vanilla milkshake uh, for yeah. lunch uh, and um, equally unhealthy for dinner. And so I began to eat fruits and vegetables. And I got to the point where foods I'd never eaten before, like broccoli was the main one. I just never had a piece of broccoli. I'd never had an asparagus. I'd never had an artichoke. And so I started choosing these foods. And amazingly enough, within you know just a few days, broccoli was tasting as good as a chocolate bar used to taste. You know, because yeah. there's depths, there's hidden depths in every broccoli stock that you don't even know about until you start savoring that. And the same thing with asparagus right now, Asparagus are probably my favorite vegetable and they're in season here. So my wife and I are just eating all the organic asparagus we can get hold of. Um, but I had never tasted any of that until I was 24 years old. I mean, it sounds crazy now to say that, but that's just the way I, I was. And um, so over the course, oh, I got to tell you what happened. Since you like the big leap, you're probably very familiar with my concept called the upper limit problem. Yeah. Let me tell you how I discovered the upper limit problem. First, my very first happening of it was I was about a month into this new diet of fruits and vegetables primarily. And I was feeling better than I had ever felt in years. I mean, I, you know, even though I wasn't eating very much protein, uh, you know, in the traditional sense, I I had somehow liberated energy in myself with my new diet that I didn't yeah. know I had. And so it's like I was burning all these years of fat in the form of energy. And I was walking down the street in Cambridge, Massachusetts, heading toward the bookstore at Harvard. And I was kind of almost skipping along. I was so happy and I had come down from about 300 pounds to maybe 277 or 265 pounds. And, you know, that may not seem like much because if I, you know, you look at a 265 pounder and you say, yeah, he's still fat. But having lost 35 pounds in a month, you know, I felt like I was king of the world. Yeah. And I looked in the window of an ice cream shop. It's probably still there. Brigham's ice cream. And there was a family of four having an ice cream sundae where bananas and three kinds of ice creams. And I just lost it. I went completely unconscious and just walked into that store and said, give me one of those. 
And it was really like I was in a trance. And now I, I, I realized I was in an upper limits trance. I had just suddenly had as much energy as I could handle. And some part of my unconscious says, okay, sabotage yourself now. And so I had my very first upper limit problem for about 20 minutes. I was wolfing this ice cream and everything down. And because of the sugar rush, I felt like, you know, a high jump champion at the Olympics, you know, wow, yeah. I was bursting out of my skin. Now sugar, I regarded, <laughs> sorry to say this, but it's a poison to me, you know, it, it's, yeah. uh, I experience it as a poison. And so I don't know if anybody else in the world will, but uh, please don't send me nasty letters if you're uh, a, uh, a sugar fan. Uh, yeah. But I found that I used to pretty much live on this stuff. And now I can't live with any of the stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, but I hadn't learned that then. I was only 24 years old. And so for 20 minutes, I felt like I was king of the universe. And then it was like somebody hit me in the stomach. I got the worst stomach ache I'd ever had in my life. And actually, I, I doubled over walking down the sidewalk in Cambridge after I'd been in that ice cream shop. I doubled over and couldn't move. And people were saying, are you, are you okay, sir? Oh, boy, was I not. And, yeah. But anyway, that really struck a sort of profound learning in my body you know it's just like if you touch an electric wire and you get zapped you know you're very careful in the future not to touch that thing yeah. and so that was made a big impression on me but i can't say that it was the last time i did it another time with some um chocolate caramels those square caramels that are coated in chocolate and now like i say if i ate one i'd probably <laughs> fall down on the floor but in those days i could eat half a box of them at one sitting and yeah. that's how unsophisticated my nervous system was but anyway um on another occasion i'd lost another 30 or 40 pounds and it was like i went into a trance again and ate a bunch of those caramels and again made me sick not as like the first time but i gradually learned i think i had to do that three times and finally i just didn't do it anymore and pretty mm -hmm. soon I've dropped a hundred pounds, you know, and I, I mean, nobody could believe it really people, you know, like saw me six months ago and then saw me after I'd lost another 60 or 70 pounds, they were just shocked. And so I was in a whole different body and a whole different life and gradually got out of that relationship. And, uh, I've, um, I've widened out my diet a little bit since then. I've, uh, I, that year on fruits and vegetables, I, I, I'm glad I did it, but now I like to eat a little bit more widely. And so uh, I can't claim to be a good vegan anymore. I uh, supplement things with some fish and shrimp and stuff like that. But um, I'm uh, the beneficiary also for the last 44 years of the most incredible human being I've ever met, Katie Hendricks, who uh, I was in one of the great feats of uh, brilliance of my life persuaded her to marry me back in 1979. And so we've been together ever since and been around the world 30 times, I think, and written a dozen books together and created kids and a vast network of coaches and trainees and things like that. And so I've had the great blessing of, and she's also a great chef and loves to cook. And so yeah. almost every day she finds some 
we only eat one meal a day, basically, which is lunch. And I uh, I have a little breakfast in the morning. I get up early, like 4.30 or 5, and uh, usually do my writing early in the morning. And so I have a little bit of food then, but I don't really get hungry until 11 or 12 o'clock in, in the daytime. And so then we have a pretty big meal and then just don't eat, might have a little snack in the evening or a cup of tea or something like that. Uh, but that keeps me very healthy. I'm uh, I'm now 78 years old and can honestly say with one exception that I feel better than I've ever felt in my life. Um, the one exception is from the knee down, I don't feel so good because two months ago, I had a slip and fall out by my swimming pool and I fractured my femur in five places and Oof. am held together in my femur by four or five bolts and a big metal rod down the middle of my thigh bone. And so I'm uh, two months out from the accident and I'm walking again with the assistance of a walker. But it mm -hmm. was tough stuff, I'll tell you, because I was in the trauma center for two weeks after my surgery. Um, I just had to have a 24 hour a day care. And yeah. then I was in a rehab center for a week and have been back at home happily for the past month or so. Yeah. Well, you, you, you're very vibrant. I'll, I'll put it this way. You have a lot of like, you have great energy. You have a lot of energy. And you know what you shared about the, the ice cream moments. I can just imagine the scene, right? From the exterior walking, you're walking all joyful. You walk in, you walk out bent in half and in pain. I think that's the ultimate image for upper limiting ultimately. Yeah. I should. Ha I wish that I had a picture of that moment. You know, just that bending over. I hope yeah. nobody else ever feels that sick. Yeah. Well, I, I can. I can attest that some people do because you know we call it binge eating, right? In the fat loss yeah, space, yeah. like some people just have a moment where they just can't control themselves. They kind of zone out and then they just wake up like, oh my god, I just consumed all this food. I feel terrible. My stomach is full. Um, is that and with other with other addictions too, Maxim? It's um, yeah. you know, like I have a friend that I play golf with, uh, who's had now seventeen years or nineteen years of sobriety. <clears throat> he had eleven years before, mm -hmm. and then one day had this thought, "Oh, I beat that problem. I think I'll take a, a drink." And he woke up basically six years later. You yeah. know, oh, wow. out, out of that trance of misery and that kind of thing. So it's not just food. Everybody, I think, has some little addictive quirk in our personalities, probably that we have to pay attention to. Yeah. What was was that moment for you? The the first the first awareness of upper limiting, and is that what caused you to kind of dive deeper in, into that concept? Was it that that moment at the oh, ice cream shop? Yes, uh, because what happened right after that let me know that I was on the right track. You know, I always say the universe is happy to reveal to us the path if we're paying attention and aren't paying attention to those old voices in our head. And uh, so right after I had that moment and changed my diet and everything, a friend of mine, Neil Marinello, God bless him, he's still a psychologist practicing in uh, Woodstock, Vermont, and a great credit to him. He was one of the other teachers at this boarding school for delinquent boys that I worked at at the time. I was a teacher and dorm, kind of a dorm wrangler. I had an apartment right at the end of a dorm of 24 boys, and I kind of had to 
keep the lid on them all week. Um, and so um, Neil was the counselor there also, and but he wasn't any longer at the school. And so he called me up one day and said, hey, I'm going out to Webster Lake, New Hampshire to hear a lecture by one of my old college professors at Harvard. He was my favorite professor and he's into some new thing and I want to hear what he's into. Well, that professor who was named uh, Richard Alpert at Harvard in the psychology department had gone to India and had changed his name to Ramdas. Mm -hmm. And so Ramdas uh, wrote this incredibly popular book called Be Here Now and full of his adventures and things like that. So he was giving a lecture, one of his first lectures with his Indian garments on and everything up the road from where I live. So we went up there in this beautiful estate that belonged to Ram Dass's father, who was a famous industrialist in New England, an investor and that kind of thing. Um, very wealthy family. There was Ram Dass with about a dozen disciples, all of them like teenagers or people in their 20s, maybe young kids dressed in yoga clothes and Indian saris and Ram Dass had his robes on. And so, of course, he remembered Neil from Harvard, but there was probably only about a dozen of us other than the disciples. And we gathered for this talk in a circle. And Ramdas talked for the next three hours without using any notes or anything. And he was talking about the very essence of life and how life worked and what he'd learned from his guru. And he would occasionally, he had a picture, an eight by 10 glossy of his guru kind of a grizzled old man. And he would pick up his picture from time to time and just look at it and smile. And then he would go back to talking again. And I was a teacher, you know, and I, I couldn't imagine going into a class, even with juvenile delinquents, without my notes and my mm -hmm. slides and that kind of thing. Where was Ramdas getting this stuff from? And so after the lecture was over, I went up to him and I said, Okay, two things. Where do you get this stuff from? You know, I, you didn't use any notes. And he said, I didn't understand this at the time. But he said, oh, it's, it's just there. I just go inside and there it is. And then I talk about it. Okay. <laughs> you know, that didn't make much sense to me yeah. as, as a very linear brained person at the time. You know, I was an English major in college. I think I took one psychology course and made a C minus in it probably. Uh, but I um, had this amazing moment with Ram Dass where I suddenly asked him, I said, look at me. I just had this amazing experience falling down and kind of changing my life. And could you suggest anything to me that might speed things up or make it better? And he said, yeah, well, over here, you might go to therapy, but over in India, you might do some breathing exercises and yoga postures, and you might even do some meditation. And there were a crowd of people around. And I said, okay, thank you. Where would I get something like that? And he came and made this flicking movement of his hand. And he said, oh, don't worry, something will come to you. Okay. And then he turned to talk to other people. Well, 
I went into a grocery store. I can't remember if it was that afternoon or the next day, but anyway, it doesn't matter. I was pushing my little cart out and I looked to my left at the counter and there was a kiosk, a little metal kiosk of paperback books. And one of them said, Yoga, Youth and Reincarnation. And I picked it up by Jess Stern. And I picked it up and guess what it was? It was an entire book of meditations, yoga postures, breathing techniques, chanting. It was everything that Ram Dass had talked about all in one little 95 cent paperback. So I quickly plunked down my money and got that. And I took it home and I just started doing the entire book that afternoon. <laughs> and so I started, you know, like three o'clock in the afternoon. By midnight, I was on the meditation chapter. I'd done all these breathing things. I'd done the yoga. And I was at the meditation and it was a simple thing. It was something like close your eyes and just say "Om" softly over and over to yourself. And I did that. And within about two minutes, I went into that pure consciousness state that I'd had when I fell down. And mm. I realized, okay, you don't have to fall down. You just have to fall into yourself. And that was a magic moment for me. Since then, I've been trained in meditation more formally, I've done Zen practice. I've uh, meditated with uh, Vipassana. For the last uh, 50 years, I've done uh, TM and variants of TM. Uh, that turned out to be my favorite using a mantra. So I have various advanced versions of that practice that I, I still do today. In fact, I haven't missed a day of meditation in uh, more than 50 years now. Wow. Wow. So... Yeah, I was going to say falling down might not be the best the best form to, to get back there, right? I think you fell down the right way the first time, and then you're able to kind of <laughs> refine it through meditation. Um, so, you know, when, when we talk about upper limiting with kind of like the people that are in my circle, at first, it's a really interesting concept, because then they start to th think of times in their life where it could have showed up. I think when I was when I was reading the book, there was, uh, I, I read the book and listened to the audiobook where you have you have a really good day and then you have a fight with your partner. And then I thought back, like there was a day where we did tremendously well with all the businesses. And then I had a fight with my partner that same night. And I was like, there, there was no need for that fight. It was a very small thing that blew up to be this, this big thing. And I was like, that's what happened here. And I started to see more, more times where it had happened in my life. And then sometimes I see it come up when I'm like, all right, I'm having a good day. Let me just be careful today to make sure they don't say anything or do something. But how, what is one of the best ways to kind of identify when that upper limit is happening? Because I feel like a lot of the time before you brought it to my awareness through your book, I would just go through life and be like, that's just kind of how it is, right? You get the highs, you get the lows, and you just, uh, you know, uh, accept them as they are. Well, first of all, start noticing not what you fight about, what you argument about, but when you do it. That's a key because we get so lost in the content of the argument that we forget to notice when we did it. Mm. Like, for example, it's very common for couples to have uh, what we call in our books, the Friday night fights, where they both get home tired and they're both not convinced they're going to get their needs met that weekend. 
-hmm. There's problems with chores. There's problems with kids. There's whatever. And so they get into this fight to justify not getting along all weekend, to having space between them all weekend. So one of the main reasons people create arguments is to create distance. Whereas if you don't create to fight, you could just ask for some space. You know, mm -hmm. distance is space with fear in it. Space is just space. And so one of the biggest problems couples have is not realizing that each person comes with an urge to merge and an urge to individuate. So we've always got two big intentions going, the intentions to be close to our partner and the intention also to be completely individuated, our own destiny, our own creativity, not filtered through another person. So both of those need to be nurtured. It's mm. incredibly important to have your own creative sense of self. It's also incredibly important to learn how to be creative with another person, to get lost in another person, to see the world the way they see it, you know, to really connect with another person. And so the main thing, though, in the early days of a relationship is just to get clear that a lot of your arguments you're creating to get some space. Mm. And it's just as easy, a lot easier to create that space by saying, hey, you know, we've been together for a while. Let's take a little, let's take a couple of hours of alone time to kind of catch up with ourselves. That's good use of consciousness in a relationship. Yeah. Well, a lot of, a lot of moments came up in my head as you were sharing that. And I was like, yep, that's, I think that's pretty, pretty much what it is. Um, so it, it, you know, in terms of, in terms of weight loss, right. Self-sabotage, like from what I've kind of noticed from after reading the book can show up in business and finances and relationship and career. It shows up a lot in health and fitness transformations, especially because that's the space that I'm in. You know, you'll lose some weight. You'll have some great success. Again, you lose 30 pounds. You go eat a full Sunday. You lose another 30 pounds. You eat some, some caramel and chocolate. So what are, what are the ways that you would deal with that specifically? Because I feel all I've identified is that awareness seems to be the most important part. Well, that's true, but it's awareness of one thing to stop overeating and break up your patterns. You've got to, at some point, become what I call a connoisseur of fear. You've got to really begin understanding your fear. You've got to dive into it and feel it and feel when it gets a grip on your body because every time you're eating unconsciously you're in the grip of fear mm. and so learning to recognize that one factor is incredibly important because if you can focus on that one thing just noticing in your body when you're scared you can oftentimes nip it in the bud like for example one of my heroes is a television producer named Ken Hecht, and he lost 127 pounds. He weighed uh, 150 pounds too much or 100, 127 pounds too much. And he lost it and got back to his good weight in one moment. And what he said, I have it in one of my books. He said one Saturday night he was feeling lonely 
and he went to the refrigerator weighing 350 pounds or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he started to open the door of the refrigerator and he realized, oh, I'm scared. I'm in the grip of fear. And I think I can make that fear go away by putting something in my stomach. See, nature has done something kind of unfortunately very cunning with us, which is put our fear center right next to our hunger center in our body. So the same little contractions that let you know you're hungry, hunger pangs. Yeah. Pe people often don't even feel that because they're overridden by fear. And that has a more powerful signal to it. And they confuse that with those good hunger pang signals and eat when they're afraid. And so that's one thing I say about becoming a connoisseur of fear. Learn how to feel your fear. Begin to pay attention to the symptoms of it. For most, most people, it's a kind of a, a slightly nauseous, racy sensation, butterflies in the stomach, some people call it. Yeah. That's probably the sensation of blood leaving your stomach <clears throat> and heading toward your muscles. Preparing for that fight or flight, ultimately. Yes, because nature has learned millions of years ago that if you're trying to digest food at the same time you're running from that saber-toothed tiger, you're a lot slower. Mm -hmm. And so nature immediately, the moment you get scared, within a split second, your body stops your digestion and throws that energy out to your muscles. Unfortunately, or fortunately, these days, most of our anxieties don't involve saber-toothed tigers. They involve our partner yelling at us or our kids not doing what they, they said they'd do or wrecking the car or whatever, all the things that kids do to uh, claim our attention. But ultimately, it's getting to really know your fear, really getting to understand it. Like the big leap, in the big leap, I talk about four main fears that get a grip on us. One is simply the fear that we're always doing something wrong. I'm the wrong person. I'm the wrong skin color. I'm the wrong, I don't have enough smarts. I don't have enough good looks. It's, it's I'm afraid I'm fundamentally wrong in some way. So that's one of our biggest fears. A second big fear is, I'm afraid of really shining my light. So I let other people shine their light. I support mm. other people for shining their light, but I'm afraid to shine mine. So fear of outshining is what, what we call it around here. So check that out in yourself. Am I hiding my light in deference to other people? Another big fear is the fear that will abandon you know, if we go to our full measure of enlightenment, if we have our full success, will that mean I have to abandon and let go my family or people in my past that um, that aren't, aren't at the level I'm at? So that's a big question that a lot of people carry with them. Um, also, a lot of us feel like if we grow we're being fundamentally disloyal 
to other people, a fear of disloyalty. And so what I want to say is, come out and shine your light. You know that you hiding your light is not going to help anybody else. And you shining your light is not going to hurt anybody else. If you shine your light, it's going to inspire other people to do that. And yeah. so, um, you know, just because Elvis Presley was a great singer, it didn't stop 48,000 other singers from going out there and doing their best too. Thank heavens. Yeah. You know, because uh, we always need a variety of creative things going. So uh, I, I don't want to overstress the point, but you can do yourself big favors by getting to know your fear better and finding out when you're scared and not acting out of that fear, appreciating it and saying hello to it and mm -hmm. loving it even, but not letting it make your decisions for you because your belly will make very primitive decisions if you're not careful. Yeah, that, that survival instinct will kick in. Um, yeah. there, there's a quote that one of my mentors shared with me and I, I want to see like the connection between the upper limit problem. So he told me with, with new levels comes new devils ultimately. So as you go to new levels, there's new challenges. So as you kind of conquer, if you want to put it that way, the upper limit, you enter a new stage. And then I suppose that there's going to be another upper limit that will show up in some type of way. The way that I've seen it for myself on a personal level is on a financial level, you start to get to a certain level of income, and then you will kind of sabotage or revert back. And then you kind of conquer it, you get to another one and you sabotage because you, it's too good, or you don't know how to handle it. So is that kind of what the concept is, is you just want to again, yeah. get familiar with that fear, conquer that one, go to the next level, and then it'll show up in a different way. And then kind of the same thing, the same process. Yes, uh, that's exactly how it works. And that's good, though, because Every time you come around a spiral, you may hit the same learning, but you hit it at a higher level because you're working your way up the spiral, what I mm -hmm. call the genius spiral toward expressing our full genius. And so it's, it's important to let yourself know that even though you see the same issue come around now and then, you're looking at it from a different perspective. And so um, I think the always the thing to do is to keep noticing when you get yourself boxed in notice when you're in your fear notice when you're acting out of that upper limit and then gradually step out of that own your fear find out hmm, what am i afraid of am i afraid of outshining am i afraid of being fundamentally wrong learn about your fear and then it doesn't keep tripping you up or you yeah. may see it come up again but you see it like on the horizon oh hi fear you know, it doesn't come up and get you by the neck anymore. Ultimately, um, it's about learning how to love your fear directly. Mm. I know that sounds like a big task, but ultimately, we all have to learn to love the unlovable in ourselves. And that's not easily done. I, I didn't find it easy, but I you know, years ago, when I set myself the task of really learning to love myself at the deepest level I could, I had to go through levels of feelings I didn't feel lovable toward in my body and mm -hmm. uh, stuff I did in relationships. But once you decide you want to love yourself unconditionally, you'll learn what to love 
by what comes right up in your consciousness. So there's only one thing to do, which is transform whatever situation you're in with love, to learn how to love more in that situation. That's all we're called on to do over and over again. And each time, hopefully you get a little bit more loving toward yourself and others than you were the last time you were called upon to do that. Um, Speaking of being called upon, I'm being given my 10-minute uh, flash signal here that I need to wind things up and uh, go on to my next appointment. So uh, shall we uh, have some final words together before I get pulled out by the by the crook of my uh, uh, circus yeah. master? Yeah, of course. So I just want to touch briefly on the zone of genius, right? You mentioned kind of spiraling up on the zone of genius. What are ways for people to kind of identify what that is? That's a question that came up often after some of my members read the book. Yes. The number one thing, Maxime, is to do more of what you love to do, to home in more on what you most love to do. Like if you've got a job now, home in on the one thing about it maybe that you love to do. So keep focusing and asking your question from inside of, am I doing more and more each day of what I most love to do? I can guarantee you that if you look at life that way, it's going to be very satisfying for you because you'll always be uncovering different elements of yourself. But keep your attention on doing more and more of what you most love to do. The second thing that I really recommend is get in the habit of using wonder questions. Wonder questions are one of the great secret gifts that human beings have. A wonder question is when you wonder about something that you really want to know the answer to and you really don't know the answer to. Like big wonder questions might be questions like, hmm, I wonder how to get the love I most want to need in my life right now? Or, hmm, how can I attract the absolute perfect partner for me to learn and grow with at this stage of my life? Hmm. Notice that I'm actually, hmm, mm -hmm. because the act of saying, hmm, actually integrates the two sides of your brain. And uh, I don't know why it is, but humming actually integrates the two sides of your brain. So okay. hmm, ask yourself those big wonder questions. Um, the great poet Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, said to learn to love the questions themselves. And then the answers to them become your life. Beautiful. Well, thank you very much for, for sharing that. I want to be respectful of your time as well. I already really appreciate your knowledge. One thing I want to mention for the people listening that made all the way till the end, what I'm going to do, because I love your work so much, uh, I'm going to buy five of the books of The Big Leap, and I'm going to give them away on Instagram. So for the guys that are listening right now, head over to my Instagram page, I'm giving away five books, wherever you are in the world, we'll get them shipped to your house. So you what you can benefit from um, Gay's work. Um, Gay, any, any last words of wisdom you'd like to share with the audience? Be sure and tag me on Instagram too, so I can uh, plug those on my uh, Instagram feed. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you all the information. Yeah. Well, Gay, thank you very much for your help. Very profound conversation. I appreciate it. it. Brought me a lot of great insights. 
It was a bit of a mix of wanting to provide value, but selfishly, I had some questions for you. So I'm happy that we got the chat today. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Thank you too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to support, please share it with others that would benefit from it. Share it on social media and be sure to leave a five-star rating and review. You can also follow me on Instagram at Maxim underscore official and on YouTube at FitVegan. The links will also be in the show notes. I'll see you in the next episode.